Hello, I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. The United Auto Workers Union has called rolling strikes against the Detroit three automakers, Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis, formerly Chrysler, since mid-September. The labor action and other strikes, including the strikes that have struck Hollywood film and television, have rekindled debate over the proper role and powers of organized labor in the United States. Joining me to discuss these topics are my colleague Parker Thayer and Dominic Pino, the Thomas L. Rhodes Fellow at National Review Institute. Uh, Dominic, thank you for joining us. Before we begin, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your work for National Review? Absolutely, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Um, I am the, as you said, the Thomas Rhodes Fellow at National Review Institute, uh, mostly covering uh, domestic economic issues for National Review. Um, wrote, I've written about uh, labor issues before, which is, um, uh, you know, the relevant thing here, but I also write about uh, different topics like taxation, government spending, things like that, and um, uh, cover those for NR, both on the website and in the print magazine. So where is the cur- what is the current status of the UAW strike? Uh, my understanding is that they are trying to like target various plants to, to, to strike at. Yes, they haven't been on strike all at once. And um, still most of the UAW labor force is not on strike at this moment, but um, they co- sort of have been, their strategy has been to ratchet it up over time if they don't get what they want. So uh, they start at a handful of different facilities and then expand that to more facilities and, and so on. Um, this is a little bit different than their past tactics. In the past, they have um, uh, focused all of their attention on just one of the big three automakers. Yes, the the, to... the pattern the pattern bar the pattern bargaining. You you go after one automaker, you strike it if you have to, and then that contract becomes the model for the other two. Correct. Yes, and and so what's unusual about this time around is that they're going after all three at the same time. Hmm. So. Uh, and what are some, what are some of the, I mean, you mentioned if they don't get what they want, yeah. what are, what are some of the things that they're, that they're yeah, asking? I'm by for? no means an expert on labor policy. So I'd love to hear from, from both of you, you know, what, what are the demands and, and how reasonable are they? Well, uh, one of the things that they want is, um, a roughly, uh, 46% raise was the initial, was the initial ask. I believe that they've gotten that down to like. 40% or high 30s now, but it's still a very... very I've, I've, seen, I've seen reporting of 36. Yeah, yeah. So I, I believe it, it, they've, they've sort of uh, whittled that down a little bit, but it's still a, a very significant raise. Um, but the bigger issue is uh, they want a four-day work week, uh, but they want five days of pay for it. Um, so uh, they would like to be paid uh, 40 hours to do uh, 32 hours of work. Um, they also want the return of defined benefit pensions. Now, defined benefit pensions are something that almost no one has uh, anymore. Um, and the, the reason for that is that uh, they are uh, nearly impossible to sustain financially. Um, and so, uh, you know, lots of companies and even and even many uh, public sector jobs have, have uh, transitioned away from those as they realize they're financially unsustainable. So, uh, what we've seen, though, is that they want to sort of. I mean, and this was, and the, the the pension issue was part of why the big three, the Detroit three, got in trouble in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, right? Yes, this was one of the contributing factors to uh, the 
uh, especially for GM and Chrysler, um, uh, and to a lesser extent for Ford and the others as well, but especially for GM and Chrysler back in, in 2008. And that's why that those two got bailouts in, in 2009. And as part of the bailout, um, the uh, UAW pension fund actually ended up as uh, one of the largest owners of, of Chrysler after that. And so um, that mm-hmm. was all uh, that, that those were contributing factors to that. You know, the, the narrative from politicians at the time was, well, we have to do this to save the auto industry because otherwise we won't have an auto industry if we don't do these bailouts. When in reality, uh, we would have had an auto industry because um, there's lots of uh, different, uh, you know, uh, uh, right. This is the, this is the, 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 trans, the, the, the transplant automakers, the, the transplant automakers in the South and the, uh, in the right to work states, you, know, you have uh, Volkswagen in Tennessee, you have, I want to say Nissan in Mississippi, I think BMW is in South Carolina. Uh, and these are, these are non-union plants mm-hmm. by and large. And the UAW has tried to organize them and has had, I think very, very little to no success. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're, they would still be a, an, an auto industry for the United States. Yeah, there certainly would. And, and what, what happened is the government really bailed out GM and Chrysler for uh, being poorly managed and for, uh, you know, and, and, and bailed out the UAW for um, a lot of the uh, things that they had done in, in the past. And it's important to remember, too, that a lot of this was going on at the same time in the years following as a large Department of Justice investigation into the UAW for various forms of corruption. And so, uh, two two former presidents. I believe wasn't it two international two international presidents went to were were ultimately convicted. Yes, two former presidents guilty. of the UAW were convicted um, uh, and and sentenced to prison for uh, embezzling uh, for embezzlement, um, and, and I believe about a dozen other top union officials as well. And this was all part of a settlement that the DOJ announced with the UAW in 2020, and they basically said, "Okay, look, uh, we've been looking into you for a really long time." We have found a consistent pattern of wrongdoing. Uh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give out these sentences, and then we're going to appoint a uh, monitor to watch you guys and make sure that you're behaving. Yeah, so back in 2020, uh, the Department of Justice came to an agreement uh, with the UAW about a long-running, years-long investigation that it had into uh, the union for, for corruption. And uh, as part of that settlement, they said, uh, they, they sentenced two former UAW presidents to federal prison for embezzlement, um, along with about a dozen other top union officials. And as part of that settlement, they said, OK, we're going to stop uh, investigating you, but we're going to appoint a monitor in order to watch over your uh, behavior and make sure that you're complying with the terms of the settlement. And uh, that monitor has put out a couple of reports in the last few years. Uh, one of the recent ones from June 2022 said that there are still open investigations uh, as of June 2022 into uh, into the union for corruption uh, and that uh, the union's cooperation with investigators had actually declined from uh, from the settlement in 2020. So uh, this is a pattern of misbehavior by this by this organization. And it's um, you know, you can see why workers wouldn't want to be a part of it. Yeah, and I mean, this was probably since the Teamsters got got the hammer brought down on them in the early early nineties, late eighties. This is probably the biggest union corruption case the the case against the UAW under its two former presidents. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was the largest since then. 
I would imagine it was just because, um, you know, their unions are so much smaller than they were before. Um, just uh, there, there's there's not that many big uh, big unions out there anymore. And a big part of that story is corruption. I mean, we do talk about the the political aspect of it, and that's obviously very important to uh, to a lot of people. Um, but a lot of these organizations, even aside from the politics and aside from uh, their support for, um, uh, you know, just kind of morphing into political organizations for the Democratic Party, they were also very corrupt and, and had all of these, uh, you know, the UAW, for example, or owns a PGA level golf course up in northern Michigan. Um, and uh, this is something where it's like, why? Why does this, you know, pro worker organization have this, uh, you know, expensive golf course? five hours away from uh its uh, industrial facilities and you know these are places where executives are going and you know union executives are going and, and, and playing golf and so uh why uh you know workers should be funding that is obviously a, a question that a, a lot of people have asked and they've said well, i don't then, really want to be and then it's it. in, speaking of speaking of speaking of things that workers might not want to be funding and you mentioned the politics you know i mean we've seen some of these new righty conservative types trying to jump onto this this strike on the side of the workers slash the union. Can the UAW be separated from the progressive movement? Well, I was certainly not the the organization as a as a you know as a as a group and, and as it's the, the institute the institution that is collecting dues yeah. and calling strikes and doing the collective bargaining. Yeah, yeah, that organization. I mean, look, uh, Sean Fain is is uh, supports Democrats unequivocally. I mean, and th- this this was the funny part of this because Fain also has said, you know, he's he's hit the Biden administration on a couple of things, right? He has said that the you know there was a a loan that the Biden administration made to Ford that he said was uh, insufficiently uh, protected, you know, union jobs and and all these sorts of things. And he's sort of made a performance of uh, withholding his his endorsement for Biden for reelection. But this organization endorsed Biden in 2020. Uh, This organization has donated over 98 percent of its campaign donations to Democrats in every election cycle since 1990. It's not like, and and it's not like it hasn't supported Bidenomics. Exactly. I mean, the, you know, it like endorsed just... the Inflation Reduction Act. It, uh, you know, when it whenever there's a comment, you know, because part of one of the underlying issues behind this strike, of course, is the transition to electric vehicles, which is being pushed by the Biden administration. Mm-hmm. But you know, the UAW comes out a couple of days ago, and they're talking about the quote unquote just transition, mm-hmm. which I mean, that's a Green New Deal slogan. And it's not a secret that the Biden administration was going to push all this, right? So when they endorsed him in 2020, they knew this was coming. And so uh, to now be like, oh, this, you know, we're withholding our endorsement. We're, you know, and then uh, and then you see uh, you see, again, like you said, some on the right try to think that they can kind of sneak in on the side here and undercut Biden. But, uh, you know, Donald Trump visited uh, yesterday um, when when other Republican candidates were uh, having their primary debate, and um, and 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 Fain was very clear that look, we, we hate Donald Trump. We'll never endorse Donald Trump. Uh, we we think he's a greedy billionaire, and you know, against the working class or whatever. We're never gonna we're never gonna support him. And uh, his and, and Trump's great uh, triumphal uh, 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 you know visit to the UAW was actually to a non-union facility uh, in in Michigan, and it 
there were very few uh, UAW members actually present. Uh, there were, you know, uh, there was some reporting that there were a handful of people holding signs that said union workers for Trump. And when reporters asked them uh, what union they were a part of, they said, oh, no, we're not. We're not union members. Uh, so it's it's just uh, uh, it, it, it's a very um, it's 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 a it would be a difficult needle to thread, but I don't even think it's even I don't even think it's a needle to thread. I just think it's impossible uh, for. Well, and this and this is and this is where you bring in you know, you mentioned some of the some of the politicians, but some of the the advocacy groups. You got like the American Compass, the the more populist wing of the conservative movement that has been trying to push a change to the way that conservatives have interacted with organized labor for the past better part of a century. That's right. For, you know, for 75 years, and you know, I've used this phrase that, 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 you, uh, that you've written about, Mike, which is the Taft-Hartley consensus, <laughs> um, which is the idea that uh, you know, since 1947, conservatives have basically said you know, unions need to be uh, accountable for uh, economic damage that they do by, by striking or by promoting inefficiency. Um, they need to be uh, subject to transparency, which means we need to know their their finances. We need to know uh, information about uh, their political activities, and um, and they need to be uh, 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 and they need to be voluntary. They need to be something you you, yeah. you never need to be forced to join a, a a union. And all three of those positions are like eighty twenty positions politically. I mean, these are things that the vast majority of people support um, because because uh, people understand that, you know, uh, I mean, Americans don't like being forced to do anything, right? So, I mean, the, first of all, that right, and 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 to the and to the extent that, you know, that they aren't, you know, four of mind in in politics and and uh, you know advocacy discussions, it's because, as we've mentioned before, the great long decline of labor unionism means that. You know, the average American, at least with a private sector job, can go through their, you know, entire life and not have to worry about a labor dispute because the Taft-Hartley consensus worked. Yes, it worked, and it was and, and it was and it was passed over the objections of of the the labor movement at the time, which called it the Slave Labor Act, and we completely. Um, uh, you know, sensationalized, which, which which is which is hilariously sensationalized, given how little the Taft-Hartley law actually did to change the fundamental structure of the National Labor Relations Act, which had passed during the Yeah, year. exactly. So they call it the Slave Labor Act. Um, this, this, this act was passed over Harry Truman's veto. They overrode his veto in Congress in order to... It was a bipart- bipartisan yeah, vote over to Truman's veto. get this thing through. And, uh, and, and it was in response to voters sending Republicans to Congress uh, and a majority in Congress for the first time in, in, in over a decade because, uh, you know, this was coming right off of uh, Franklin Roosevelt's time in, in, in government. And so, uh, you know, there was a huge strike wave after World War II. Yeah, FD, FDR, FDR gave unions big powers with the, the original National Labor Relations That's Act. That's right. And they got so cocky. Sometimes called, the Wag, sometimes called the Wagner yeah. Act. And then after after World War II, you have, you know, a, a no strike, no lockout pledge because we got to fight World War II. And then World War II ends, and then unions say, okay, we've got all these powers, we're going to use them. Exactly. And they got cocky, they overreached, and uh, re- voters responded by sending Republicans to Congress. And Republicans, uh, you know, 
actually went through and, and, and got the Taft-Hartley Act through in order to restrict uh, in order to restrict some of those uh, powers and prevent that kind of union overreach. And of course, a big part of that was allowing states to pass right-to-work laws, um, which uh, which has been an extremely successful conservative initiative over the last uh, several decades. And again, just to and just to be and just to be clear on what a right-to-work law is, that just that just makes paying union fees voluntary. Exactly. It just says, look, you 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 get to you, you get to join a union or not join a union. And that is your affirmative choice. Um, it is you cannot be you cannot be forced to do it uh, or not do it. Um, so I guess looking forward, you know, do we, do we think that the, uh, that the sort of new right, you know, approach to labor that we need to import European labor relations models, do we think that that's going to get, that that's getting purchased or, uh, you know, do we think that that's just, you know, an intellectual fad that is, just happens to be heavily subsidized by liberal big philanthropy. <laughs> um, I, I think it is. I think it is largely uh, a fad for the moment. Um, we we are in a, a very strange time, uh, just in labor markets. We are in a we are in a position right now where we have, um, as as a sort of just constant condition, we have more jobs than we have workers to fill them. And we had this before the pandemic, towards the end of the Trump administration. And we have it now again as the pandemic recovery, which which is which is if you are a labor union, a very heady time to try things like strikes. And- exactly. Yes. So 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 it's partly a consequence of that. Now, how how permanent that that labor market condition actually is, is, is very hard to tell. Um, and so uh, so there could be changes there that sort of change the, the circumstances. But the, the fact of the matter is that to most Republican voters still, to most conservative, uh, you know, people who would identify as conservative, uh, organized labor is still a dirty word to them. And it, and it should be because it's it, it, hilariously this week, American Compass brings out a poll framed as favorably to organized labor that you could possibly be to Republicans and 5941 Republicans, Republican voters, they found said organized labor was a negative. Influence. Yes. And then they broke it down by by um, by class. And they found that uh, their what they described as the working class actually held that view at a higher rate uh, than than other familiarity breeds. Exactly. Contempt. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's exactly what this is. I mean, you, you, in, in when when you're having a conversation at a sort of intellectual level, it is uh, it is easy to see how uh, you know organized labor could be a beneficial thing, could be something that could help uh, that could help workers. But in practice, as it has actually happened over the last 100 years in the United States, we've seen that organized labor is uh, a breeding ground for corrupt organizations that ultimately become politicized, and they all become politicized for the most part corrupt, in one so direction. Corrupt. And and, and if, if if they're either they're either socialist and progressive or really corrupt, correct, or both. correct, and and there's very few exceptions to, that. and you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, Jim, Jim, Jimmy Hoffa's Teamsters were really corrupt, but not super progressive. correct. Yeah, 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 but they, they more than made up for the lack of progressivism with a little extra. They more than made, yeah, more than made with. <laughs> um. All right, uh, Dominic. Before we let you go, is there anything else that you'd like to promote to our listeners that you're working on? Um, I would just say to check out uh, everything that we do at national review 
Um, you can subscribe to NR Plus. We have a really good deal for first-time subscribers, and uh, that'll get you full access to our website. It gets rid of all the ads and paywalls, and you can uh, you can uh, read all of our content. And um, I would encourage you to uh, to do that. Uh, it's a great way to get good conservative commentary, both from me and from uh, all my colleagues at NR. All right. Well, thanks again to Dominic Pino of the National Review Institute for joining us. That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you all next week. Thank you.